0: If you have not already turned there, please do so to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. I would invite you to stand as I read for you our text, Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God add his blessing as we study his word together. You may be seated. One of the greatest truths of scripture is that believers are to share their faith in Christ with those who do not yet possess faith in Christ. So important was this obligation to proclaim the good news of the risen Christ that Christ himself made this the topic of his final conversation to his disciples on earth. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, those very familiar words, Jesus said to them what? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus intended the good news of his teaching to be used by his people to make followers of Jesus Christ, and just prior to his ascension, that moment when he, on the on the Uh, Mount of Olives would be taken up before the very eyes of the disciples, before all of Jerusalem to behold. What did Jesus say to them? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. I just... Sometimes I get tickled when I read that last phrase because Northwest Arkansas is about as remote away from Jerusalem as you can get. And so he was speaking about the gospel being preached right here. It seems reasonable that if we as followers of Christ are to fulfill that great commission, we must have a clear and correct understanding then of what is the gospel. You and I as individuals must be clear on the gospel. This is so crucial in our day as people. Many who are presuming to call themselves Christian have reinterpreted the gospel so as to make it to their own advantage except not to their eternal advantage. There are so many different versions of the gospel out there in the marketplace of ideas. And so, therefore, as believers, we must apply the principles of Scripture to our lives and strive to live out our understanding of the faith. We must be a gospel people. We must be a people that ooze the gospel, reflect the gospel, preach the gospel, live the gospel. I desire this morning that you almost get tired of hearing the word gospel. But we need to know what it is. It all begins with having that understanding of what the gospel is not based on what some preacher says not based on what some book has written but what on what has, what I'll get it but based on what God has told us in the scriptures and it should never be a gospel that is convenient to us people want convenience today I stood amazed. I know this is going to blow your mind. I stood amazed. I made a cup of coffee yesterday, and I went off and did something, and my cup of coffee was cold, and I loathe cold coffee. No iced coffee. It's got to be hot Hot and hotter. I go, some of you know, I meet you for coffee. And I say, I want this kind of coffee. And then they'll say, I want it hot. I want the cup to melt. I want you to be hurt when you hand me that cup of coffee. Preach it, brother. I lost my track on that. The amen just threw me for a loop. (laughs) I'm sure there's a point to be made there. I'll get back to my notes now. What's that? We should be hot as the coffee. coffee. That's great. Okay, we'll go with that for now. (laughs) Oh, convenience. That's where I was going. I stood amazed that I took my cold cup of coffee. And I know you all are going to think I've lost my mind. I put it in the microwave. And I put that on there for one minute. And I watched that cup of coffee get piping hot within seconds. That's convenience. And too many of us want the gospel to be that convenient. Following the gospel is difficult work. It's the most glorious news there can be. It's the most wondrous thing. It is simple in that all we must do is believe it, and yet to believe it takes everything that we've got. There is no microwavable gospel, and yet we live in a culture that wants to microwave the gospel. Paul understood this, and this is why after introducing himself to the church at Rome, he begins the body of his letter with a presentation of nothing less than the gospel of God. Remember that Paul saw himself as a slave of Christ and he sought to serve the kingdom of God by preaching the gospel to the Gentiles of the Roman Empire. Again in verse 1 he introduces himself. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for what? The gospel of of God, And now time, uh, Paul takes the time to spell out exactly what that gospel was in some encapsulated form because the rest of the letter is going to blow it all out. It's going to show everything there is about the gospel. But right now, Paul wants to just tell you, I can't wait to tell you the essence of Gospel. This clear and concise description of the gospel formed the foundation of his preaching. It was the, the foundation of all that he taught. It shaped his theology and his understanding of everything about himself. And most importantly, it shaped his theology about Christ. It guided his thinking and it determined his actions. Paul's understanding of the gospel and the gospel alone was the determining factor of the choices he made. With regard to the way he would live his life. And so it makes perfect sense that as Paul begins this letter to the Romans. He begins with a presentation of the gospel. As believers in Jesus Christ all our hope is tied to this proper understanding of what is the gospel of God. Why? Beloved if we get this wrong even just a little bit wrong. Everything else is wrong in our lives. Not only in the present But uh, with regard to what we believe about God and his truth, but it will affect how we think and act about life and particularly concerning eternal, the eternal destination of our souls. It affects where we're going in this temporal life, but when this temporal life ends and forever begins, is it based upon what God has said is the good news? And that's what we want to get right because what we understand about the gospel impacts everything your morality is affected by what you understand of the gospel our marriages our family our employment our uh, uh, what we find entertaining how we use our time our interactions with others everything is affected by your view of the good news and what we understand about the gospel then Not only does all of that, but it impacts your intimacy, your closeness, your engagement with God himself. So this is where Paul begins. In verse 1, with the gospel of God. Then beginning in verse 2, we have the first of three understandings, descriptions of the gospel that Paul wants to communicate to his readers. Right out the bat, this is what you need to know about the gospel. Again, he'll expand on it. But I find it interesting that he begins where we might not have thought to begin with the gospel. What are these three understandings? He begins with the continuity of the gospel. Then he moves to uh, the um, content of the gospel. And then the commission of the gospel. And this morning we are going to look at those first two points. The continuity of the gospel, whatever that means. And the content of the gospel. So let's begin with the continuity of the gospel in verse 2. So Paul communicates what I'm calling the continuity of the gospel. Now, the word continuity simply means something that's continuous or the ongoing nature of something. And in this case, it speaks of the ongoing, continuing nature of the gospel. What I wish to declare to you today based on the word of God is that the gospel is Good news, but it's not new news. It's old news. It is news that comes from the very beginning, and we'll take a look at that in just a moment. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to God, is not some theological novelty that was conjured up in the mind of Paul. How can I twist people to donate money to me? I'm going to come up with this, this gospel that will have people give to me. The gospel of God is not some plan B that the Father had to come up with because Israel's had rejected Christ. Nor is the gospel of God something that God came up with after the fall of Adam. Now what do I do? I didn't expect this, and so he comes up with this antidote, this solution to the problem of human sin as a, as a secondary action. Since God is immutable, immutable meaning he's unchanging, the gospel was not a change in the divine strategy. It was not, oops, what do I do now? It was not an alternative arrangement. The gospel was and has always been God's sovereign plan from the beginning. Note something specifically here that verse 2 tells us concerning the gospel of God. Note, this is where Paul starts with his presentation of the gospel. He says in verse 2, it is the gospel which he, God, promised beforehand. He tells us right out of the gate, this is not new news. This is old news. This has been around. Here we're told that God the Father had promised. That word promised means literally professed beforehand. That is given. He had given an oath in advance. He pre-announced that which was to come. The way Paul uses this using an aorist middle verb tells us that God made this promise in the past. It was declared. Further, the promise was made by God and for God with respect to God and God alone. What does that mean? It means nobody came alongside and said, God, you need to do something. God, you, you, what if it wasn't some uh, council of, of angels and, and heavenly beings and like now what do we do because of Adam's fall? No, God had already made all of these decisions. No one coerced him into making this promise. He determined it and then he declared it from long ago. The good news is not new news. God announced the good news over and over in the past. It is, it is in the scriptures. And just how did God make these announcements? Well, we read in verse 2 how he did it. He announced beforehand through what? The prophets. It could be through or by the prophets. These are his Old Testament spokesmen in or by the holy that is the set-apart glorious scriptures. He spoke to us beforehand through his representative speakers in the Old Testament. Now, Paul uses the term prophets different than sometimes we generally tend to think. By prophets, he didn't mean men only like Daniel or Isaiah or Micah who would foretell something. But rather, any Old Testament person who ever spoke on behalf of God is considered in this context a prophet. So Paul, in Paul's view, Moses was a prophet. Joshua was a prophet. David is a prophet. All, all those who spoke for God are prophets. Paul wanted his audience to understand that the gospel was an idea that permeated the Old Testament writings from the very beginning. And it was so important to Paul to focus these Roman believers on the Old Testament scriptures. He wants them to know you can trust God. This is not new. It's always been. And one of the reasons why Paul was concerned about this was probably because of the Jews who were in Rome. Because they were not depending upon the Old Testament scriptures, but rather what they referred to as the Talmud or the Rabbinical Teachings. Remember that the church at Rome had been likely founded by some Jews who had traveled from Jerusalem, having been saved at the time of Pentecost uh, in, around, in Acts chapter two, though the Gentile members of the church had uh, had, uh been left to themselves because the Jews had been banished from Rome in 49 AD. With their return, it was necessary for the Gentile congregation to be refreshed with what regard to the The Jews believed about the scriptures. You've got these Jews coming back into the church at Rome, and they're bringing all of their Old Testament understanding, and the Gentiles are like, wait, that's old stuff. We don't want that. And the Jews are like, wait, there's all this new teaching, and Paul's trying to say it's all God's teaching from beginning to end. At the time of Paul, most Jews focused again on those rabbinical teachings rather than upon the scriptures themselves. And so Paul is determined to correct this, and he says, I want you to go right back to those Old Testament scriptures, and I'm going to show you Christ, and I'm going to show you the good news. Now, Paul had been trained in those rabbinical teachings, and he knew firsthand that these man-made sources of truth were emphasized more highly than the New Testament scriptures. It was a clear failing of Judaism at the time. You might think, I I, I don't know, how, how do we see that in the scriptures? Well, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said a, multi, a multitude of times in Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 21, 27, 33, 38, and 43, he made this statement. Do you remember the statement? You have heard that it has been said. And when he says that in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you've heard what the, the rabbis have taught you. But now what does he do? He says, let me tell you what scripture actually says. When he says, you have heard that it was said, he is not referring to the Old Testament scriptures, but those rabbinical teachings that were human traditions. And Jesus was making sure that his listeners at the Sermon on the Mount were not paying attention to man-made teachings, but to the actual teaching of God. Now Paul comes along and says, I want to make sure that you're not paying attention to man-made teachings, but the actual teachings of God. This was a great challenge for the Jews at the time and ever since. They've needed to set aside their own man-made understanding of the Messiah and accept the truths of the Old Testament scriptures. And to make sure that this would happen, Paul begins to outline his understanding of the gospel to the church at Rome. The Christian gospel had been spoken of long before. Beloved, the gospel has always been central to what it means to follow God, whether it was Adam, whether it was Abraham, whether it was Moses, whether it was Daniel, whether it was Peter, whether it's Paul, or whether it is us. Can I tell you something? Do you know why this country is where it is today? You know why we are in dark days? Because the church has failed to be a gospel people. We are not living out a gospel culture. And the world has become confused because we're largely silent. Now, I'm not saying that it wouldn't already be that way, but we are as a church, and that's whether our local church or the evangelical church at uh, at large, we need to be a gospel culture driven by the gospel, directed by the gospel, determined for the gospel that what I teach my children, what I will speak to my employer, how I will engage myself in my relationships will all be built on the gospel principles. It has always been that the true people of God are gospel-oriented people. You say, well, where stands this written? Are you just making this up? In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, notice what Paul says to the Galatians. The scripture... Referencing Old Testament scripture, foreseeing that God would what justify the Gentiles by faith. What is that? The doctrine of justification by faith alone. Preached. What did he? What? What? What was preached? The gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel was preached to Abraham. This is not new news, folks. And he said to Abraham, so when you read these statements in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 of what we call the Abrahamic covenant, what are you reading? You're reading the gospel, and through you all the nations will be blessed. So we see the gospel, this glorious truth that God would justify sinners by faith alone in the coming Christ, was taught, was present in the time of Abraham around 2000 B.C. Anybody ever close to that date here? The gospel is not a deviation from the past, rather, it is a continuation and a consummation of what was declared beforehand. You may ask me, was the gospel present before Abraham? Because there's a few folks before Abraham, right? I'm glad you asked. We find the gospel all the way back to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what theologians like to call the Proto-Evangelium, which simply means the first evangel or the first gospel, and you've heard these words before, right? The Lord said, and I, the Lord, will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the, the, the serpent, the, uh, the devil incarnate in the, in the serpent, He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he, this promised seed, shall bruise or crush you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's the first gospel. Adam and Eve, you fell into sin. But there will be one who comes from you that will destroy the works of the one who deceived you and tricked you and brought upon you this devastation. Of course, ultimately, that would need Adam to be in his race to be redeemed. And so we trace the gospel through the Old Testament. Not only is this good news that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, we learn that the coming one would be born of a virgin and be the incarnate God in Isaiah 7.14. We read that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. We learn that he would be despised and rejected by Israel, Isaiah 53. That he would die a sacrificial death in the place of the guilty, being pierced through on account of their sins in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and Daniel 9.26. We, we read that he would not be left in the grave, but that he would be raised from the dead in Psalm 16.10. We're told in Psalm 68.18 that he would ascend into heaven. And that, my friends, is just a sampling of the promises God said the gospel is coming, the gospel will be fulfilled. The gospel was preached in the Old Testament. A careful reading of these passages and other such reveal to us that God has spoken to his people about the doing, the dying, and the rising of Jesus Christ our Lord on our behalf long before Jesus ever stepped foot on this earth. John Calvin rightly noted, Christ came not on the earth unexpectedly, nor did he introduce a doctrine of of a new kind and not heard of before inasmuch as he and his gospel too had been promised and expected from the beginning of the world. This is not new news. The gospel is good news. I might also point out that there seems to be another reason that Paul begins defining the gospel by stating its continuity, that it has been going all the way from the back, its connection to the Old Testament. Remember that one of uh, Paul's chief rivals during his preaching were a group of men called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were men that thought that Paul was preaching contrary, undermining the teachings of Moses and the law of God. They went around proclaiming that Paul was teaching what? Some new, innovative message as he preached his gospel. They saw what Paul was teaching as a new trend, of unheard of uh, in the Jewish scriptures. And so from the get-go, Paul makes his case that the gospel of God is neither new, it is not anti-Jewish, but it is positively, irrevocably, unalterably found in the Old Testament scriptures. And ever since the bad news that Adam disobeyed God and introduced sin into this world and to each and every one of us, along with its devastating and eternal consequences, God has said the good news. He has proclaimed the good news, his gospel to humanity. This is the continuity of scripture, and that's where Paul begins. And then he brings us to his second point, the content of. Of the gospel. Now, you all could probably guess what the content of the gospel is, right? If you gave the Sunday school answer, you would say, Jesus. Okay, good. We'll move on. No, I have more to say. What is the content of the gospel? Having established that the good news is not new news, Paul now introduces the very central subject of the gospel, and it is no one else, nothing less than the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we could say, is the featured person of the gospel in the Godhead. It is true that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, I, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It is true that God the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates God's elect people according to the divine plan of salvation, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. But the gospel itself, this good news, this message that is found throughout Scripture is centered in or as verse 3 begins, it is concerning, it is about, it is with reference to one person, his son. Now, you might just stop there and say, well, wait a minute, who's he talking about? Who's the son? Now, you all have been around for a while, so you know this is God's son. But if you just follow with me just a a little bit down, you see in verse 4, he clearly identifies who the Son is. He says, The Son is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Beloved, the gospel is not so much a what, the gospel is a who. And the who is Jesus Christ. This means that the essential content, the very core of the gospel, this good news is concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Get to know Jesus and you know the gospel. The closer you are to Jesus, the closer you are to the gospel. Apostle Paul summarizes this for us very succinctly in the words of familiar words of, of First Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15:1 through 4. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received in which you also stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, by the way, according to what? What scriptures? Paul had in mind here Old Testament scriptures. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again, on raised on the third day according to what? The scriptures. The Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is to be seen as the centerpiece, the focal point, the chief end, the critical mass of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, as John Calvin, I believe, so aptly noted concerning this passage he said this is the principal passage in which we are taught that the whole gospel is bound up in Christ so that if anybody moves a single foot away from Christ they withdraw themselves from the gospel oh may it never be that any one of us would move a single foot away from Christ so Paul in verse 3 first identifies Jesus as his son that is God's son Jesus Christ is uniquely God's son, the eternal son, not created, not redeemed, not adopted. By the way, what are we? Created. We are redeemed and we are adopted. And so we are called the sons of God. But Jesus is, a, is the son of God in a unique way. Jesus, as God's son, possesses equality with the father. He said in John 10:30, I and the father are one. We know God's son is the second person of the blessed trinity. He is the son of God and he is God the son. He is the supreme being that we're told who created everything. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. But then we're told in John 1.1-3 that it is through Jesus all things came to be. Jesus in Revelation 1.8 is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and is to come, the Almighty, the Almighty. There's no one more mighty than the Almighty. You can have mighty people running around, but the Almighty is the, well, Almighty. That's Jesus. According to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, we find that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were what? Created. Where? Both in the heavens and on the earth. They could be visible or invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, everything has been created through him and they are for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What is is not that which uh, Christ has done in this verse? And and, and I'm amazed at this passage because it, it blows my mind. Everything you look at, everything we know, every galaxy that we can conceive of, it's all done by Christ, God's Son. But then verse 18, talk about from just the massive comprehensive scope of everything God has done or Christ has done. And then in verse 18, he zeroes it in on these believers. And he says in verse 18, he is also head of the body. This one who created everything. This one that we can't even begin to imagine what life would be without him. The one who holds everything together. This is the one who's the head. Of this church. There's no one like him. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Why would you tell a bunch of Christians Jesus made everything, and he's the head of the church, and he's going to have first place in everything? Because I think sometimes we as Christians forget that. And some of us want to have first place somewhere in our lives. And Paul says the gospel is focused on the supremacy of Christ. He is the son who did all of these things. Jesus is the centerpiece of the gospel. Now I want to actually jump down to verse 4 for just a moment as we find Paul further identifying for us the son with some additional descriptions Notice what he says there. He uses, uh, we begin at the end of verse 4 where Paul makes note of the Son with this threefold description of him as as who. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. So I want to have you consider these with me, first noting the distinctive name of the Son. His name is Jesus. Now, that is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name of Yahshua, or we say Yahshua. Joshua, and the name Jesus or Joshua means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. The name Jesus is the most often used term to speak of the humanity of God's son. We see this distinctive name of Jesus being given to the son, proclaimed by the angel of the Lord to Joseph. You know the story. We're about to come up on the whole season, right? Joseph finds out that his wife is pregnant with child. And he's kind of like, now what am I going to do? Because the child's not mine, and this is a scandal. This is a problem. And so the angel speaks to Joseph, in, in beginning in verse 20, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, that would get a guy's attention. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name, the distinctive name, of Jesus. Why? Why Jesus? Because God's son will be him who saves His people, is that what he says? For he will save his people from their sins, a play on the very meaning of the name. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. What's he saying? God with us, that is the Son of God, now has been given a human name, and that name is, oh, what, come on, that name is Jesus, okay. Well, that's his, that's his distinctive name, now let's look at his distinguished title very quickly. He is not just Jesus, he's Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ, Christos in the Greek, And it's the equivalent for the Hebrew word Messiah as found in the Old Testament. So the Christ or the Messiah affirms that this Jesus is God's promised, appointed, uh, anointed one sent from him. This is the promised one. You knew the Messiah. That's a title. Now I've given him a name, Jesus. He will be the messianic king. He will be the mediator between God and man. He will be the ruler, and he will be the mighty deliverer of his people from their sin, and he will shepherd his flock. When Jesus asked the disciples who they believed he was, Peter the spokesman declared, He didn't stand up and declare, hey, who do people say that I am? And Peter would say, you're Jesus. That's not what he said. What did he say? You know, in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's a profound comprehension that you Jesus are the Christ. You Jesus are the son of the living God and this name then that of Jesus that sets him apart as the one who brings salvation and this title of Christ that sets him apart as being the promised one of God, the living son of God who's now Emmanuel God with us. That brings us to the final designation. I call it the divine designation. He's Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you like that little our? You didn't just say Jesus Christ the Lord, it's Jesus Christ our Lord. The word Lord, Kyrios in the Greek means master and with reference to God and to Jesus it speaks of him as being the sovereign master over all things, the ruler and reigner supreme. That Paul would use this term as he writes the book of Romans is quite profound. We just kind of blow past it. We're so familiar to it. But what to whom did they refer to as Lord in Rome? Caesar is Lord. When you saw Caesar, you were to stop and say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And Paul comes along and says to these Romans Christians, he says, This is Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. And so tradition tells us that the Christians would reply back to the crowd who would declare Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. And what would they say? Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Because the believers realize that in the ultimate sense, Jesus Christ is the supreme Lord over all things. And as such. None none of that could be said of any other person. And so by proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord meant that all things are subject to him, that all people are subject to him. Caesar can have his little, you know, party and think he's reigning over all things, but ultimately Jesus Christ will come to have first place in everything. Additionally, this designation reveals to us the divine nature of Jesus, for it translates the Old Testament word Lord or Yahweh to refer back to who? To Jesus, Jesus is Yahweh or Jehovah of the Old Testament. Well, next we see that it also, with regard to the content of the gospel, we see the son's description, but we find the son's dual nature. Having considered uh, who the son is, Jesus Christ our Lord, let us note two descriptions that are given that reveal this dual nature of the son. Looking back at verse 3, it says, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of... David. Who's David? He's a man. Some guy from the Old Testament. I mean, big guy. Well, I don't know if he's a big guy, but uh, he's, uh, of course, the king of Israel, right? He is the descendant of David according to the flesh. And so clearly this verse indicates the humanity of Christ. Jesus is the son of man. Jesus was born a man. He was not just any man, though, who is born a descendant or a seed of David. Why is that important? Well, remember that the gospel was promised beforehand, and so even this statement reminds us of what God foretold David all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 14, what we call the Davidic covenant, where God says, Good news. You saw what happened to King Saul's kingdom? I'm telling you, you know, you're going to have some ups and downs with some of your offspring. But there will be one that comes whose kingdom will be forever. And we read that in verse 12 and 13. When your days are complete. And you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This was not Solomon. Solomon's kingdom did not reign forever. Solomon died and he handed his kingdom over to his son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, well, it was a jerk, okay, theological term. And the kingdom began to to just wither away. But there's this promise, the gospel. I will establish the throne of this descendant, this one descendant. Notice it's singular, forever. So now Paul informs his readers that the son is, the, is of the line of King David. Our Lord Jesus is from David's lineage, and he had to be so. Uh, In Acts chapter 13, verses 22 through 23, Paul declared, God raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, that's the gospel, God has brought to Israel a savior, and what is his name? Jesus. Jesus. Paul is determined to establish that his son, God's son, the son of God, actually became a man, a a real man, 100% human. He does this by stating that the son came according to the flesh. This is not speaking of flesh in the sense as sometimes the way we understand it. We walk according to the flesh, and that means what? That we're sinful creatures. That's not what Paul is speaking of. We know Jesus had no sin. The point Paul is making is that Jesus came into the world truly human in flesh and blood. The marvel that Paul is establishing here is that both the humanity and the deity of Christ are being simultaneously simultaneously united in the person of Jesus. God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the one who is truly and fully God, as we'll come to see in a moment, through the incarnation, through the gruesome process of being born of a woman, Galatians 4, 4, became truly, fully man at the moment of his conception by the miracle of the God, the Holy Spirit, remaining what he had always been from eternity, God, a very God. He became something that he had never, ever been before, man, according to the flesh. Just think about that for a moment. At the incarnation, Jesus became the God-man, one person in two natures, both divine and human, According to 1 Timothy 3.16, Jesus is God manifested in the flesh. Real flesh and blood like you and I. This is significant that Paul is pointing this out here because there would be those who would come along later and try to dupe the church by saying, well, Jesus wasn't really human. He's divine, but he only appeared to be human. He only pretended to be human. He only seemed to be human a heretical group known as the docetists taught that nonsense no Jesus was real man real flesh real blood real bones and all of this would be absolutely necessary why because if he was not any of those things he could not die in our place he could not be our substitute he could not take our place on the cross we who are what Flesh and blood and bones. This is what Jesus did on Calvary for sinners. This is the work he willingly undertook to accomplish in our stead as our sinless representative on the cross, as Hebrews two verses fourteen and fifteen reminds us I love this verse. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, did what? He partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And Christ, through that sacrifice, having become like us, brings many sons and daughters to glory. The whole point of verse 3 is to identify the humanity of Jesus Christ. He's truly man. However, this leads to the second consideration of his nature that is taught here, and we've already been alluding to it, that Jesus is not only the son of man, truly man, he is truly the son of God. He demonstrated this through the way that he lived his life and the way he died, and then ultimately through his resurrection. All of these things revealed him to be truly the divine In a dramatic and spectacular way, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead declared, or we would say, distinguished Christ. It demonstrated Christ. It determined him to be the Son of God. You cannot look at the resurrection of Christ and merely think a man was raised from the dead. You say in that moment, that shows he is God. The God-man was raised from the dead. This declaration of Jesus as the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead is the irrefutable evidence that Jesus was indeed divine because none but God could ever overcome death. Paul argued such on his first missionary journey in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. Look with me at Acts 13 verses 29 through 33. Paul says, when they, well, we read, when they had carried out everything that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the gospel, the good news of the promise made to the fathers. The gospel is not new. That God has fulfilled this promise of the gospel to those of us who are the descendants by raising Jesus. It's all showing us the the divinity and the humanity of Christ. The resurrection validates everything that Jesus did. If there had remained a body in the tomb, all that Jesus had said, all that he had done would be, of course, wonderful. And those who witnessed it would have been blessed by his healing power and his provision. But it would have been irrelevant in terms of eternity. It would have just been a good show. We had a good run for three years. It was great. Some of you watch uh, some TV show that has three seasons. And you're like, oh, I wish there was more. But it ends and you're sad. What happened to the rest of the people? Jesus never ends. What he began continues. There have been many other great men and women who have spoken profound truths and done marvelous things, but there's only one who was promised to rise from the dead, never to die again. And not only is Jesus the Son of God, but he is said to be the Son of God. Notice what it says, with power. What does that mean, with power? Well, that's with full sovereignty. Jesus doesn't lack anything. As the God-man, he has sovereignty. We might sometimes forget that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is actually a dividing line which marks the end of Christ's humiliation. We humiliated Christ, the glorious God born of blood, born of a woman, walking this earth, suffering all the humiliation that was thrown at him for his 30 some odd years of life. And the resurrection marked the end of his humiliation and it began his ultimate glorification, his exaltation into glory. That Jesus rose from the dead is not only a demonstration then of divine power as no mere human has the ability to do such things, but it signifies for us that he is fully deserving and embracing his position of sovereign over all things. And we read about that. Jesus says the very same thing. Most of you know Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples. Remember what Jesus said just before that statement? What does he say? And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. What's higher than that? You say, well, God's higher than that. No, that is God. If you have all authority, you are God. And so that's what he's saying. Jesus is the sovereign supreme ruler over all things. There's no one higher, no one greater, no one grander. Jesus is equally glorious to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus is God, the Son of God. Jesus, because of his resurrection from the dead, is not simply declared or marked off or appointed or designated uh, these things. He is the sovereign supreme over all. That phrase, according to the spirit of holiness, is interesting. While it stands in contrast to the phrase, according to the flesh, in verse 3, rather than simply a continued expression of the the divine and human natures of Christ, it would seem better that Paul is wanting his readers to understand that, that twofold phase of Jesus' ministry. According to the flesh, as a descendant of David, Jesus lived in humility. He actually was humiliated concerning who he was as God's glorious son, and while on earth, we know that his glory was veiled. The, the disciples occasionally got glimpses of that, that the Mount of Transfiguration. John would say, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But I don't know that they really caught that until after his resurrection. According to the flesh, he was humiliated. His glory was veiled. However, because of the resurrection from the dead, Jesus is now what? Fully glorified. There's no mistaking who he is. In the book of Revelation, it says that when Jesus comes back, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. They will know him when they see him coming in the clouds. We will all know him. There will be no mistaking that that is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. His glory will now be manifested over all the earth. But through all of this, Paul emphasizes his emphasis in verses 3 and 4. Is upon the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. And I just want to ask is that your emphasis? We can flesh out all of these wonderful details about who Jesus is, all these triggers that Paul wants us to to contemplate by these phrases that he used. He tells us that Christ is the heart and soul of the gospel. He will tell us at the end of Romans that, that that, uh, uh, that Christ is the heart and soul of what he calls my gospel, meaning this is my life. I have nothing to offer anybody. But God, the gospel, but Christ, it is to be the foundation of our faith, because if we do not get this right, nothing else will be right. And so ultimately, this morning, I say to you, the call is, do you believe? You can hear all about the gospel. You can say okay you've told me that Jesus is divine and he's human that I, he had to be flesh so that he could stand in my place on the cross and redeem me from my sin that he had to be divine so that he could live forever and and fulfill the the, the, the promise to to uh, David to sit on the throne forever but do you believe it? Do you believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Well then we have to ask ourselves, uh, question what does it mean to believe to believe means that you practice that you put into practice your confidence in the person and the work and the words and the will and the ways of Christ to be a Christian is to be sold out for Jesus It is not a half-hearted endeavor. You can't be half-in for Christ. That would be saying like Christ is only half a savior. He's either saved you or he hasn't. And your life is to reflect that reality Christ, You believe in Christ, not just some facts about him, not just some head knowledge about God, man, sin, and Jesus Christ. It is to have a confidence. It is to have a trust. It is to now have your practice be affected by what God has communicated to us in his word, the gospel. I would say to you, it is to have faith in Jesus Christ. And I do want to remind you that every one of you in this room have faith. I want to tell you everybody in Rogers, Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas, has faith. I want to tell you everyone in the world has faith. But the question this morning is what is the object of your faith? What is most important and the supreme object of faith as well as the centerpiece of the gospel in the life of the Christian has to be Christ himself. He is the content of the gospel. Know him, you know the gospel. Believe on him, you believe the gospel. We are to have an utter confidence, a trust, a dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God's son, that he is the fulfillment of God's promise made beforehand, that he is human of the line of David, that he is who he says he is, the son of God, and that his resurrection from the dead decisively and demonstrated it so that his resurrection points then to what? To be raised from the dead means you had to first die and that he died on the cross to take the penalty of our sins upon himself so that those who believe on him may receive the benefit of his perfect righteousness. This is to believe in the gospel. This is to have faith in Christ. And I tell you that without that faith, you are left hopeless, you are left helpless, and you are headed to a Christless eternity. God calls you and I to have an intention to exercise such a faith, to believe and be believing and belonging to Christ. So I ask you to believe in Jesus Christ. And to believe in Jesus is to know oneself to be a sinner and that Christ has come to save sinners. Save not to a diminished experience of life, but you know that when you come to Christ, you have life fully. I've come that they might have life and have it to the uttermost completely. This is the gospel of God. This is its continuity. God's good news is from the beginning. And its content focused upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you three questions. Do you believe? Will you believe? And if you say you believe, does your life demonstrate it? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel. The gospel that we hear of so often, that word, and we have all sorts of concepts. I pray that you would help us hone our minds in. On when we say the gospel, we equate that with the Lord Jesus Christ that it will bring a smile to our face and a delight to our hearts because we know who he is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. And Father, our ultimate prayer is that we, upon believing and knowing and hearing the gospel, would be a people who practice the gospel truths, that our lives would be gospel-oriented, that we would live a gospel culture, that the world would look at us and recognize not simply that we have different beliefs than them, we live differently. We live well. We live with joy. We live with peace and satisfaction because we believe in Christ. We believe that if God did not spare his own son for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so, Father, we thank you for such a blessed truth. I pray, Father God, for those who may not yet believe. Today, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day your spirit quickens the heart and opens the eyes so that they would behold and then profess Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the work that you must do, So we pray that you would accomplish that for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.